For as long as she could remember, Ellie wanted to get married. Even when she was a little girl, she'd love the bridesmaid dresses and the flowers and the drama of a bride and groom dressing up and uh, making promises. In fact, by the age of eight, she had planned most of her wedding. Twenty years later, the big day finally came when she would walk down the aisle herself. She had met her knight in shining armour, or so she thought. Rob was an office romance that had turned serious. He seemed to have just the right combination of rugged good looks, intensity and competence, with an appealing dash of socially awkward. (laughs) He had proposed to her in Rome. They married in a country church and had an idyllic honeymoon on a Caribbean island. But within three days of returning from the honeymoon, Ellie realised that life was not now magically complete. It turned out that Rob was not actually perfect. To her surprise, he did not shower every day. He was a loud snorer who habitually left the toilet seat up and the toothpaste cap off. How annoying that can be. He did not grip household responsibilities and often had to be reminded multiple times to take the rubbish out. He was, unlike her father, not good at DIY. More seriously, Rob was a ditherer and very indecisive. And as the years went by, this just kind of became more and more irritating. He did not progress up the career ladder at work. They never seemed to have enough money. Certain friends had much more dynamic and successful husbands. Rob gained weight, and he looked a little bit paunchy. She'd never realised before that a person's entire body could smell like a kebab. (laughs) And she hardened her heart toward him. After five years, she realised she had heard all of Rob's funny stories. After ten years, she realised this is it for the rest of my life. And at 15 years, she found herself reading romantic fiction and dreaming about life with other men. And one day, Ellie just woke up and walked out of the marriage never to return. Everyone was shocked because it was so unlike her. But the truth is, Ellie's bags were packed a long time ago. She started packing them three days after the honeymoon, the very first moment that she hardened her heart. Now, that is a fictional story. And as they say, any resemblance to real persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental. But here's why I told it. Our relationship with the living God is a little bit like that, because it's a relationship. And like most relationships, there's a honeymoon phase where everything seems great, lovely. But the real relationship develops in the wilderness. And we're faced, those of us here who are Christians, we're faced with a decision every single day. Am I going to rest in God and draw my strength from him today, or harden my heart and walk away? Every day we have to make this decision. Am I going to rest in God and draw my strength from him or harden my heart and walk away? Am I going to grow in trust and love or harden my heart? And that is especially the case when circumstances are against us and life doesn't work out. When God doesn't behave in the way we expected. Now there's nowhere in the Bible that this is more clear and dramatic and powerful than in this book of Exodus. The contrast between the honeymoon phase of rescue and the wilderness period is so dramatic. About 70 descendants of Abraham have grown 
into a nation down in Egypt where they've been living as resident aliens, immigrants. Over 400 years, they've grown and become a great, numerous people group. But they've also been enslaved by the powerful kings known as pharaohs. And these pharaohs have exercised their power in a crushing way. At one stage, a pharaoh ruled that all Israelite baby boys should be killed to keep the population down. Another pharaoh subjected them to crushing slave labor to break their spirits and take away any chance of an organized revolution. And then Yahweh stepped in. That's what God's name is in Exodus. We translate it the Lord with little capital letters. But it really means Yahweh. I am who I am. The living God came to their rescue. He brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And he showed everybody who he was and what he was like. He was honoring his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he was making a people who would worship him and would make his name famous in the whole world. So that ultimately everybody, every family on on earth would benefit from the Israelites. That was the end game. And most dramatically, he parted the waters of the Red Sea. And these Israelites walked through on dry land. And when Pharaoh and his avenging army came through, the Lord released those waters And they swept back down and the violent oppressors were drowned in the flood. What a rescue. Now that day, the Israelites sang a song. We read about it last week. It's called the Song of Salvation, the Song at the Sea. It's a song of celebration and adoration. How great is our God? It's a song where they anticipate a wonderful future with him. And it was glorious that day singing that song at the beach. It was genuine. But it was just the beginning It was just the beginning, it was just the start. Because it was the honeymoon phase. And what we read from now on is about real life. And real life is all about making this choice. Am I going to rest in God and draw my strength from him today or harden my heart and walk away? And I want to share three points with you today uh, in this passage we read, which is about sweet water and bread from heaven. The first point is tests of the heart, then tendencies of the heart, then transformation of the heart. Tests, tendencies, and transformation of the heart. Tests of the heart. We pick up the story in chapter 15, verse 22. It says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. Straight after the Red Sea, singing on the beach, and into the desert. And this desert, according to the scholars, is a vast Hostile, dry, inhospitable wasteland. Now just think about this for a moment. I've heard a lot of Christians and a lot of preachers, including me, criticise the Israelites for their grumbling. But let's just pause before we throw the first stone. Just imagine what this was like. Three days in the desert without finding water. Men, women, children... The very young and the very old, the aged, the infirm, extensive flocks and herds, and there's a limit to how much water you can carry. After three days, what does it feel like? I don't expect any of us here has ever really been very, very thirsty. I don't expect any of us have travelled in the desert with no idea of where the next water supply is going to come from. And at that moment in their experience, what does life feel like? They actually think they they could die there. And it's not the kind of death you want to die, is it? 
slowly watching a whole community die of thirst under the merciless sun? What does life feel for them like for them at that moment? This isn't just about wanting a drink of water. This is about panicking. They are really afraid. What's going to happen? Where are we going to get the water from? Talk about coming down from the crest of a wave. Not that long ago, they'd seen enough water to last a lifetime. Now they can think about nothing else. And also, there's a bit of a trading standards question here. Hadn't Moses and Aaron talked about taking a three-day journey into the wilderness to worship God? And here we are after three days with no sign of civilization. And Moses and Aaron are up the front, scratching their heads, looking at the map, holding it up and down. And of course, the sat-nav isn't working. Those of you who have children know that famous question from the back of the car. Are we nearly there yet? I think that question is being asked here. But then things get worse. Because they see an oasis in the distance. They, they see some, probably some trees on the horizon. And hopes pick up and spirits lift. Hurrah, thank God there's water here at last. And they run to it. And they cut their hands and they drink deep. Only to spew it out because this is bitter. That's why the place is called Mara. It means bitter in Hebrew language. Some desert waters are so full of mineral salts, they're undrinkable. Now, Mara makes the situation feel much, much worse, doesn't it? It adds insult to injury. It rubs salt into the wound. Imagine the sheer relief of seeing some trees in the distance, only to find that the water is undrinkable. There's a feeling here of bitter disappointment. It looks like God's leadership is bordering on the cruel. Now, in chapter 16, verse 1, the story goes on. They set out, and here they go again. And now they reach this place called the Desert of Sin. Should have been a signal there that things might go wrong. The Desert of Sin. And about one month after escaping from Egypt, they find that the food supplies are running out. And the people probably start to panic again. Now, they're not starving yet. They must have still had flocks and herds. But try asking a farmer in the ancient Near East to start eating his flock. It's like asking him to destroy his future. If you eat the flock, where's your livelihood? Where's your future? You've got nothing left. Everything depends on the survival and the growth of the flock. And one month in, they must have eaten nearly all the packed lunches. They must have eaten nearly all the food they could carry. And the animals are getting thin because there ain't much grass in the desert. And again, at this moment in their experience, there is no sign of where the food is going to come from. There is no sign. Somebody once said that every society is only three meals away from a revolution. Three meals away from a revolution. According to George Orwell, Lenin refused to feed beggars on principle so that they would starve and rise up in revolution. Nothing more overpowering than the feeling of intense hunger. It can drive people to do crazy things. And here it's combined with fear for the future. Where's the food going to come from? Imagine the mothers with young children on this track. Imagine the looks that some women were giving their husbands at that moment. You thought it was a good idea to follow these guys out of Egypt. There is no natural way to feed thousands of people in the desert. Humanly speaking... They've come out to die. I wonder if you've ever wondered this about your own life. Perhaps you've trusted Jesus Christ. You followed him and there was a wonderful honeymoon phase. 
time of, uh, you experienced a peace and a joy that you'd never really known before. There was a new sense of purpose and hope and direction. And you, you actually entered into a unique community, the Church of Jesus Christ, where the most diverse people can actually be friends and love each other because of grace. But that was then, and this is now, and now you're in the wilderness. So why would God lead you into a desert place? You're now thinking, I didn't intend to be single for this long. I didn't think I would have this little money and I would just feel like I'm scratching out an existence. I didn't think that I would have these health problems or that my child would or that my mum would. I didn't think I would struggle with this amount of depression and darkness and anxiety. Where is God when life sucks? Now the answer is that it's a test of the heart. Chapter 15, verse 25, Moses cried out to the Lord. Sorry, I've got the wrong verse there. Um, 25, there the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. Chapter 16, verse 4, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them. Now, what is going on with this test? It's not like a driving test, you know, a pass-fail thing, or a GCSE where you're going to get graded. This is a way of God saying, do you really trust me? Do you really love me for who I am? Are they really committed to God or just using him for his benefits? Will they learn to trust him and follow him through thick and thin or desert him every time life gets hard? It's that kind of test. And that raises a big problem for us because of the tendencies of the heart. The tendencies of the heart. Now, although I've been expressing some sympathy for the Israelites so far, there's another side to the coin. Remember what they had just seen. Remember where they've just, from where they've just come. Remember how they've been delivered from Egypt. Remember God's power over creation shown again and again in the plagues. Remember how he's kept his promises. So there is something absolutely perverse about their reaction. Their response to the water crisis is a grumble against Moses, God's leader. They're turning against the very guy who led them out of Egypt. Within three days. It's a pretty short memory. And then in chapter 16, it intensifies with the food crisis. It says the whole community turned against Moses and Aaron and grumbled against them. Every man, woman and child is moaning about Moses and Aaron. And all they can think about is food. Look at verse 3. They said, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire community to death. All they can think about is food. It sounds like a Brazilian barbecue. We sat around pots of meat. For those vegetarians in the congregation, we sat around pots of nut cutlets. Just for a moment, they forgot about the slave labor and the infanticide and remembered the Egyptian barbecue. Oh, it was good. Oh, those steaks. Those Egyptians know how to cook up a good steak, you know. Man alive, I'll have my medium rare. In fact, in the book of Numbers, chapter 11, verse 5, the Israelites said... If only we had meat to eat, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. 
also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. <laughs> what a list! <laughs> that sounds like Jamie Oliver could cook something wonderful up with that. You know, what a way to talk about food. This food is now more vivid than anything else in their whole lives. This food is now more real to them than God, in spite of the recent deliverance. But this is the tendency of the human heart, and maybe the human stomach, to focus on the immediate, to focus on how I'm feeling today, to focus on present experience, how I'm feeling right now. Last week I had a wonderful today, but heaven, heaven knows I'm miserable now. We have incredibly short memories. We're fickle, we're ungrateful, we're very short term. So they say something absolutely ridiculous. You have brought us out here to starve us to death. If only we had died in Egypt. Now what a thing to say. How ridiculous is it? But this is the tendency of the human heart. Take away the familiar, take away our comforts, Put us in a hard place and we focus on despair. We focus on circumstances. Charles Spurgeon was a great um, English preacher of the 19th century. In 1855, he, he said these words. We never have any encouragement to ask God to let us die. Christians are always wanting to die when they have any trouble. You ask them why? Oh, because we would be with the Lord. Oh yes, they want to be with the Lord when trouble and temptations come. But it's not because they're yearning to be with the Lord, it's because they desire to get rid of their troubles. They want to get home, not so much for the Saviour's company as to get out of a little hard work. They did not wish to go away when they were in quiet and prosperity, like lazy fellows, as most of us are. When we get into a little trouble, we beg to go home. Jesus said, I pray not that you would take them out of the world, but you would keep them from evil. You may wish it sincerely and really desire it, but you will not get your master to pray with you. Instead of crying or wishing to be away from the battle, brace yourself up in the name of the Lord. Every wish to escape the fight is a desertion of your master. The tendency of our heart. A couple of months ago, we had a, a meeting of church leaders, and somebody said something in that meeting which was actually quite true. And uh, I, it, I mean, it was fair, there was nothing unkind about it, it was a factual statement. And I found that that comment pierced me to the heart, threw me down into despair. Because I'd invested five years of my life serving this church. And I wrote to him and said, I didn't sign up for this. Ever thought that? I didn't sign up for this, Lord. I didn't want this. Our own self-pity and misery and focus on the circumstances. Now, what is the solution to this tendency of the heart? Finally, thirdly and finally, it has to be a transformation. A transformation of the heart. And notice, it's a transformation of the heart, not necessarily the circumstances. How can we get a changed heart? A heart that will not despair and give up when we find ourselves in the desert place. Well, first of all, we learn from this passage that we have to learn to trust God that something foolish and weak and inadequate can do something extraordinary. You know what the solution at the, 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 the bit of waters is? Chapter 15, verse 25, Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him 
a piece of wood. A log. And he threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. Okay. Now how ridiculous is that? Some people have tried to argue that this log must have had some um, properties that changed the water or that it was some kind of basic filtration system. It's not really the point of the passage. The point is that God tells Moses to do something that looks completely foolish and weak and destined to fail. And yet because of God's power, this humble log resolves the entire water crisis for tens of thousands of people. It turns bitter to sweet. And the people are refreshed. And they're able to go on to Elim. We have to learn to trust the word of God even when it appears weak and foolish and destined to fail. The second thing we notice from this passage is that we have to see the supernatural provision that God has sent. We have to see it. Now it's quite beautiful that the the Israelites are moaning and complaining and saying you brought us out here to die and God's response is actually not to, to blast them or tell them off or express his anger. His response is to rain food down from heaven. This bread from heaven is nicknamed manna. Because the word manna means, what is it? What is it? That's what they call it. Nobody knows. They've never seen anything like it before. It's a sweet wafer. It's different from anything they've ever eaten. It comes down in the morning and there is. You can gather enough to feed people. They can process it a bit, bake it or whatever. It's provided directly from God. This is a miraculous thing. It's supernatural. And they are to gather it every day, but only enough for one day. If you try and keep it for an extra day or keep a little supply back, it actually goes rancid and maggoty. They have to rely on God for every single day, one day at a time, except the Sabbath, Saturday, when God miraculously allows the bread to last an extra day so that they learn to rest on him. Now, what does this mean for you and me? How is the heart going to be transformed? How is life going to come back and be renewed in the wilderness? How is bitter turned to sweet? Not by a log, throwing a log in the water, but by a wooden cross. By something that appears so weak and foolish and failed, but in the power of God is able to transform the whole world and certainly able to transform your heart. When circumstances go bad, when life is miserable, I need to look at that cross to remember Jesus Christ And I have to reason from God's word. If Jesus did that for me, has he really abandoned me now? If he did that great thing, is he also faithful and loving to me in this lesser thing? If he loved me enough to die for me, will he not also give me everything I need and keep me on track for heaven? And as you do that, day by day, month by month, year by year, you find that the bitter is turned to sweet. Not necessarily because the circumstances change, but because you change. The heart is transformed by trusting in the word of God and putting your hope in something foolish and weak and looks destined to fail. The heart is also transformed by learning to feed on something supernatural. Learning to feed on something supernatural. I want to turn, uh, and if you'd like to turn with me to John chapter 6, I want to finish with this reading from what Jesus says about the manna. John chapter 6, page 1070, page 1070, Jesus actually talks directly about this experience in the wilderness. 
John 6, people asked him, verse 28, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. Do you see what Jesus is saying about himself? He is the true manna, the true bread from heaven. He's the one who came down from heaven and he sustains our lives in the wilderness. And there is no other way. You see, we're all faced really with a simple choice. When circumstances are tough, when life goes sour, we can either give up and want to die or want to go back to Egypt, or we can grasp Jesus Christ by faith and be sustained by him in this moment. That's what feeding from him means. We need to do it every single day. Or it goes maggoty and sour. We need to learn what Sabbath means to rest our whole weight on him. Trust God and not wear ourselves out by our own efforts to control every outcome. Friends, you know, some of you, that you've got to do this because you're not doing it at the moment. You are wearing yourself out trying to control every outcome. Some of you guys here go from one week to the next, from one Sunday morning to the next, without really thinking about Jesus Christ. And then you wonder why you're finding life hard. If you want to change bitter to sweet, if you want to be sustained in the wilderness, you've got to go to him every single day and lean on him and ask him to be with you because he said he is the true bread from heaven. Your life might not change, but everything will change because you will change within. You will become sweeter and sweeter with every passing year. But you must, you must feed on Christ, rest in him, read his word, listen to him, pray to him. Spend time in his community because God will give you grace, but only enough for a single day. It's the only way our hearts will be transformed, but they can be. Jonathan Edwards was a brilliant young scholar. He was a philosopher and a theologian, but actually God was very distant to him. Then one day he came to what we would call a paradigm shift. His mind changed. There was a revolution in his thinking. He read this verse from the Bible. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And for the first time, Jonathan Edwards had an inward, sweet delight in God and in the things of God. 
He wrote these words. As I read this, there came into my soul, and as it were diffused through my soul, a sense of the glory of God. A new sense, quite different from anything I'd ever experienced before. Never had any words of scripture seem to me as these words now did. I thought with myself, how excellent a being God was. And how happy I would be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up in God to heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him. And from that time, I began to have a new kind of ideas about Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him. I had an inward, sweet sense of these things that at times came into my heart and my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them. And my mind was greatly engaged to spend my time in reading and meditating on Jesus Christ and the beauty and excellency of his person and the lovely way of salvation by free grace in him. And I found no books so delightful to me as those books that treated of these subjects. You see what he started to do? He started to feed on Jesus. He started to rest on him. He was sustained in life. And his heart began to change. Now the challenge to us is this. In the tests and the tendencies of our heart. The challenge is this. I can guarantee that the honeymoon period will be over. In fact, it, it, it may have finished already. Real life will intrude upon your experience. And you will be faced with challenges. Things that you didn't sign up for. Things maybe that you've invested an awful lot of hope in that don't come to pass. That's a bitter feeling. Things that seem unfair. Somebody else, life seemed to work out. Why didn't it happen for me? Things that make you weep. Things that make you struggle and fill you with fear and panic. That is the wilderness. And here's the mysterious thing. You don't get much choice about the wilderness. It's not a place that you usually planned on going to and spending much time there. But the sovereign Lord will meet you there in a way he couldn't have done if he was still in the garden. He gives us these tests of heart to draw us to himself. There's no other way for us to grow in trust and love, sadly. You may not get any choice about the wilderness, but you do have a choice to make. It's a choice of how you respond to it. That is completely up to you. It is in your power. Because God has led you there to meet you there. And as we've seen today, he provides in the wilderness. He provides for his people. He turns bitter to sweet. He turns empty and famished to full. He provides for us in the desert. The Israelites ate manna. They drank sweet water. We can feed on Jesus Christ. Will you do so today? Will you do so today? Will you do so this week? Every day? Will you change the course of your life so that you're set on him and not set on yourself? And maybe there's one person here, just one person, who knows that today they've got to trust Christ for the first time. You've been here for a while, you've been listening, you've been learning, you've been depending on yourself, and now you realise you've got to come to him. Friends, come now. Don't wait. Trust him. I'm going to pray now. Even now you could pray and, and change your whole life. Ask God to come and forgive you and change you. And he will be faithful to his promise. Shall we pray together? Our Heavenly Father, we are amazed and challenged 
And convicted by your word, we see so much of ourselves in these Israelites that we're ashamed to say it. And yet we thank you that you are faithful and great. And that in Jesus we have a new and better way. A new covenant. A new heart of flesh that can be given to us. A new spirit within us that wants to keep your laws to love you and our neighbour. And we thank you that you have not left us alone in the desert place. We thank you that we can sing, blessed be your name. You have been very sweet to us. You have been very good to us. We thank you for that and we pray. Those of us who've strayed, have us back today. Welcome us back, father of the prodigal with open arms. And I pray too for somebody here today who needs to trust Christ, to lean their whole weight on him, to stop running, to stop depending on themselves, and to lean on him and to ask him for forgiveness and mercy. Please grant it now by your Holy Spirit so that we would all rejoice and be glad in him. Pray these things in his good, strong and mighty name. Amen. Amen.